I just want to extend a special welcome to you this morning uh, for uh, this Christmas day. It's a special day. Uh, it's Sunday, but it also happens to be the day in which we uh, remember the, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's a Christmas day, but it's also uh, Sunday, and that's how, how fitting for that. I saw some stuff on social media. People were wondering, well, should we have Christmas? You know, should we have services on Christmas Day? You know, and I think, well, why not? Uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, Sunday and it's Christmas, so we should do it. And so this morning we just gathered uh, to kind of uh, take a look at the uh, historical reality uh, that surrounds this young uh, virgin uh, in Bethlehem, Mary, who was told by an angel that she was going to have a baby uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then her husband-to-be, her betrothed, her engaged husband, caught wind of it, and he was like, well, wait a second. Uh, uh, when he found out that, uh, that she was pregnant, he was like, I'm, I'm going to get rid of that woman, but I'm going to do it quietly because I don't want to disgrace her. And then an angel appeared to him and said, no, don't worry about it. It's all good because the, the baby that's to be born, both of them were told, is the Son of God. He is the promised king of Israel. He's the one who's to come to, to save his people uh, from, from their sins. So the two traveled to Bethlehem for this census, and while they were in Bethlehem, she gave birth to a son. Amazingly, that the first people that were told about this miraculous birth were the shepherds, like out in the fields. Like it was not, uh, you know, it uh, was not some... Instagram post that went viral or something. It was just like, okay, a few guys out here in the fields around Bethlehem, you guys get to hear about this birth of this Jesus person. And then later, it, it was attested by the wise men who came several, you know, several months, probably a couple of years later, and bowed down and worshiped this king. And so this morning, we kind of got a little unique service plan for you. It's probably uh, different than any of us probably have ever uh, been in before, maybe not, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but um, it, it's not weird, different, okay, uh, so it's just different, and in the sense that we're going to have several of our men come, and uh, each of them is going to share a, a reflection from God's Word about a particular aspect of this person, Jesus, as proclaimed in the, in the Bible, from a different vantage point of Scripture. Each one comes with a different vantage point, vantage point of Scripture, and then the reflections will be followed, each reflection is followed by uh, a hymn or two, and those hymns are listed for you in your bulletin. So if you didn't get a bulletin, there are some more out on the welcome table. And then part of that process will be uh, the celebration of, of the Lord's table. And so without further ado, I hope it's your desire and my desire is that we will come and worship Him who has been born uh, the King of Israel, the King of the Jews, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we commit this service to you and pray that you would be honored and magnified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, good morning. And my task this morning is to take us back to a time before the birth of Christ when all we had were some pretty glorious prophecies and even a little further back to some obscure references, and even further back to where there's just a tiny scrap and hint of the coming of a Savior. So that first verse would be in Genesis 3, and most of these will be familiar to a lot of folks here. 
Remember the serpent had come in and destroyed and attacked God's creation and broke that sweet fellowship between man and God forever, it seemed. And God cursed that serpent and he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that little, that little reference speaks of hope. It speaks of hope to the homeless, the abandoned, the orphan, the oppressed, those whose friends speak lightly of them, those who have no future. That little verse speaks of one who will come and stand for them. But there's more. We can jump ahead to Moses. And Moses records Balaam's prophecy. Balaam was kind of a strange prophet, but God gave him a word in Numbers 24. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Interesting that Balaam would speak of a, a redeemer to come. When Moses is standing right there, Balaam would have known Moses. Uh, but in fact, he says, not the one I see, but one I don't see. And one, not the one that's near, but one that's not near. A star shall rise and a scepter shall rise. And then we jump from Moses to David in Psalms 2. Uh, David, the great shepherd, the great thinker, the psalmist uh, who pondered God and thought upon him, um, wrote this. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Who is this son that David was speaking of, except one to come, one that had not been seen, one in whom to put our trust and hope? And a few generations later, Isaiah, the great prophet, adds a great deal more detail to these promises and speaks also of the son. He says in Isaiah 9, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be placed upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Wow, that's a lot to think about. Some, someone's coming. He's, he's greater than all the kings we've seen thus far. And uh, he's coming directly from God. God will place him in his, in his, on his throne. Isaiah follows up in Isaiah 59 when he speaks of a redeemer to come. Then the Lord saw, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay, so that so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come. The Redeemer will come. So says the Lord. Will the Lord keep his promise, do you think? We shall see. of Christmas that I was asked to talk about and meditate on is the joyful arrival of our promised Redeemer, um, who is Jesus. And I was thinking especially about how two of the first Christmas songs ever sung, ever written, um, sing about the, a few ways in which Christ's arrival caused joy. Um, at the time of his arrival and even today. So I'm going to be in Luke chapter 1, because um, where else on Christmas? Uh, and going to be starting in verse 46. So Luke 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So the first reason for joy here 
um, is that the very circumstances surrounding Christ's birth are a disruption of the normal way that our world works um, by bringing a holy God down to the least of, of us. Mary recognizes her humble estate here, even as she's being called to be the mother of the Son of God. And um, yet she is still allowed to be a part of God's fulfillment of his promise. And this fills her with joy, which is why she sings this awesome song called the Magnificat. And um, she's praising an attribute of God that God himself iterates all throughout the Bible, which is that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, as it says in James 4, verse 6. So by being born to a poor teenager in a stable, Jesus is subverting the expectations that the Jews would have had for their Messiah. They expected a powerful ruler to come in and rescue them, but instead he came by very humble means. And that is, that is something that he continues to iterate throughout the Bible in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Um, it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So it should bring us joy, not just to Mary, but to us, because we don't really have anything to offer God either outside of what he gives us. We are, we are nothing special. We are just humans that he has created who mess up. But God's grace um, is the focus here. And Mary even says, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So the focus is on God, not us, during Christmas time. God gives us his grace and mercy regardless of our mistakes, and that is the first thing worth rejoicing about. So moving on through Mary's song, Luke 1, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So the second reason for joy here is that the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise of a Savior. So, as Paul talked about, Jesus wasn't just the Savior of Israel, but he was a long-expected Savior. Um, over the course of, of several thousand years of promises, and then subsequently 400 years of silence from God to the prophets. Um, so the anticipation of that great Redeemer made the occasion all the more joyful for the Israelites as their Savior came and for us too. Um, and Mary had not forgotten God's promise. As she says, um, God had not forgotten his promise either. So now we're gonna go, just kind of flip the page over to Luke 2, verse 11. And this is the angels talking to the shepherds out in the fields. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the last cause for joy here is that God is glorified in the arrival of Jesus to earth. Um, 
Christ's birth brings glory to God by showing that he can fulfill his promises, but also by bringing praise to God through his angels here and also through his people, and that includes us. We get to be part of that joy. And Jesus came to the world not just to save us, to save sinners, that is an important part of it, but I would say even more importantly, he came to glorify the Father. And he clarifies that throughout his ministry, that he is there to do the Father's will. So I would like to finish with just um, the last verse of Joy to the World. Um, we'll sing it later on today, but I think it's especially fitting for the topic of Jesus' joyful arrival. It says, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So I think our next song is hymn 168, Who is He in Yonder Stall? Christmas. It's really good to be back with you. We've been gone for a few weeks, and it's good to see each one of you here this morning. <clears throat> I'd like to read in Luke chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. There's a couple of observations I'd like to make in these few verses. The first one, Colin touched on it, is that Jesus' birth brings glory to God. When I read this portion of scripture about the birth of the Lord Jesus, I guess I've always focused on the shepherds and the angel's announcement to them and they're going into Bethlehem to see the baby. But I'd like to shift our focus from the shepherds to the heavenly host. You know, in heaven we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the angels, including Michael and Gabriel, the cherubim, the seraphim, and as it says here in verse 13, the heavenly host. But suddenly at Jesus' incarnation, the Son of God isn't in heaven anymore. The heavenly host looks 
at the baby lying in the manger, the Son of God, who's taken on human flesh. And with the announcement to Mary and now Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, they see the beginning of God's amazing redemptive plan for mankind. You know, in the Old Testament, we have many prophecies concerning Jesus' birth, and now they've come true. And there are many prophecies concerning his death and his sacrificial death for people in the world. And this heavenly host sees that, the beginning step in God's redemptive plan. And what's their reaction? Verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The beginning of this magnificent work of redemption is meant by praise and worship and glorification of God. And in addition to the heavenly host, we also see over in verse 20, the shepherds glorified and praised God for the birth of the Savior. So we see one, thing, one observation is the glorification of God. Second observation is God's purpose in the incarnation and how the incarnation reveals God's character. And the, the purpose and the revelation is found in one word in verse 11. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That one word is Savior. That's why Jesus came. God's purpose for sending Jesus and the revelation of his character is shown here in Jesus coming to the earth to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. You know, God is righteous and just in condemning sin. And he's also gracious and merciful in sending Jesus to die in our place. We read in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. And God sending his son into the world was the ultimate act of love toward us. When Jesus was here on earth, he was a great teacher. He performed many miracles. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He did many other marvelous things. But the reason he came to earth was to be the savior of the world. He went to the cross and hung there between heaven and earth. He paid the debt to God that you and I could never pay. He took our sin upon himself and clothed us with a robe of righteousness. He died so we could live eternally. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I like to personalize that. Jesus came so that you and I could have life and that we could have it more abundantly. 2016 was the last year that Christmas came on a Sunday. And this morning we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus. But we also remember him in his death on this first day of the week. Jesus asked us to remember him in the bread and the cup. And we have that opportunity to do that this morning. What a privilege it is to celebrate his birth, to remember his death, 
and to rejoice in his resurrection. Aren't you glad you're here this morning? What a privilege it is to gather this morning to celebrate and remember his death. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. today to partake of the emblems, the bread and the cup, because they are the essence of the Lord's Supper. I'm reading my remarks for the sake of brevity and completeness. We are responding to our Lord's request to do this in remembrance of him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 to 26, the Apostle Paul writes, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The apostle then adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The apostle used the word often, which does not define a set interval between observances, but does suggest that it is appropriate to do it frequently. At Creekside, we have an hour-long observance at 9 a.m. each Sunday morning and a shorter observance at the end of the 10.30 Ministry of the Word, which is as often as that for any Protestant congregation of which I am aware. Some may criticize us for doing it so often, supposing that in doing so, it is certain to grow stale. But to devoted hearts, it is what true worship is all about. It provides the motive for our service to God. Until the rapture of the church, in each observance, we proclaim the Lord's death to a lost and dying world. But I am convinced that the Lord's death on the cross will continue to be our focal point throughout eternity. Our Lord does not leave us in doubt as to what the bread and cup symbolize. He said, the bread speaks of his body, which was broken for us. This is the body that came from the virgin mother's womb, weighing likely under 10 pounds, helpless, and totally dependent on Joseph's protection and Mary's milk, who would grow up in favor with God and man, who would be possessed of the skills of a carpenter, who would experience all of the ups and downs of human life totally apart from personal sin, 
whose teaching would confound the wise, whose voice would calm the storm and raise the dead, whose touch would heal the leper, restore sight to the blind, and restore hearing and speech to the deaf and dumb, and yes, who would be physically and emotionally broken by every physical pain and disrespect that mankind could invent and inflict. And finally, to be forsaken by his father who would pour out on him all of the judgment due us for our sin and that of all mankind for all time. His voluntary sacrifice was the fulfillment of all which the animal sacrifice symbolized under the Mosaic law. Jesus said that the cup speaks of the blood of the new covenant, the original covenant between God and Israel under the Mosaic law was ratified with the blood of animals. Under that covenant, God would bless Israel if they were faithful to him and obeyed him, but he would judge them if they were not. They didn't remain faithful, and eventually God sent them into captivity. So God inaugurated a new covenant as we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with him after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This is a unilateral covenant. It is based on God's promise and does not depend on human faithfulness. This covenant, too, was ratified in blood, the blood of Christ, which is symbolized in the cup that we take along with the bread. We know that the life of the flesh is in the blood. We read that in Leviticus 7:11. So the loss of blood results in loss of life. But the scriptures say in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Further, in Romans 3.23, we read, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6.23, we read that the wages of sin is death. Finally, the scriptures say, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That is found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. So the meaning is clear. We have all sinned and deserve death. Jesus died in our place when he shed his blood at the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus shed his blood once. He cannot and need not shed it again. When by God's matchless grace, we by faith receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the indwelling Spirit of God, and a host of other blessings. All true believers should desire to honor Jesus' requests to remember him in his death by partaking of the bread and the cup. 
it is obvious that only those who have trusted Christ and have thereby become children of God can do it in the way it is intended. The scriptures warn against doing it in an unworthy manner, that is, in a disrespectful way, which would be inconsistent with its meaning. Known sin should be confessed beforehand, and to the greatest extent possible, relationships with fellow believers should be in a state of love and peace. We do it because we are saved, not in order to be saved. Jesus alone saves. We add nothing to the certainty of our salvation by doing it. But we are certain to gladden the heart of God our Father when we worship his Son and give him glory so, which he so richly deserves. We now have the opportunity to partake of the emblems and we invite all who know Christ as Savior and Lord to do so. Before we do that, I will give thanks as the Lord did when he inaugurated these emblems. And then afterwards, we will invite you while Karen plays these lovely hymns for us, to come forward and partake of the emblems that we have on the table here. We're not going from row to row. It is simply uh, too close and uh, uh, <laughs> calls for possible accidents. So we'll ask you to come forward in this particular case. So let's just give thanks now uh, for as we partake of these emblems. Our God and Heavenly Father, our Lord asks us to remember him in this way. And that's what we would like to do this morning, in obedience to his command. We're thankful for the emblems that he gave us that are so full of meaning. In the bread we see the body broken broken in every way imaginable by the pain inflicted by mankind and by the judgment poured out by a righteous holy God against our sin. We partake of the cup because it symbolizes the blood without which there's no remission of sin. We can come here this morning. Our consciences are free of guilt, not because we are guiltless, but because he paid the price for our sin and has purged our hearts and our consciences such that we can know God in a way that is impossible by any other means. Our Lord and Savior came to show us what you are like, and we rejoice in that, and we honor him for it. So we do this in praise and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we give you thanks. Amen.
the story of Jesus. We've been reminded of the promised Redeemer, looked at his arrival in Bethlehem. We have considered the fact that he came to be our Savior, and we've taken time to remember what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. His body was broken and his blood was shed as the payment for our sins. And you know, for most of us, it's like, okay, now tell me something I don't already know. Uh, you, you haven't given me any new information. For most of us, for some maybe that might be true. But the, the fact is that uh, we, we know that Christ came. Uh, the scripture tells us in 1 Peter 3 that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. God gave us the gift of his Son so that we could receive the gift of eternal life offered us through the Son who sacrificed. And this gift is available for those who would exercise their faith in trusting that Jesus' death was the payment they deserved, that he died so that they could be delivered, so that they could be free, not just that he did it in some generic way so that everybody is saved just because they've heard about it. He died so that those who exercise faith in Christ would be free from sin's control so that we could actually have victory over sinful thoughts, the jealousy and bitterness and lack of forgiveness, so that we could not covet what other people have. He would have gave us deliverance not only from sin's control, but sin's consequence, which is ultimately that we would spend an eternity apart from God in heaven, uh, eternal judgment. Uh, the new life in Christ that he offers us, which is eternal life, right? This is eternal life, is, is a right relationship with God. It means pardon. It means a lot of things, but if we have a relationship with God, it means pardon from sin. I'm not punished for it anymore. Um, my uh, grandchildren sometimes do things that they shouldn't do and they get punished for what they do. We all sin, we get punished for that. But if we're in Christ, we're no longer punished for our sin. We're free from that. We're free from the power of sin. I don't have to sin anymore. I'm not a slave of sin. I can, uh, by God's grace and his power working in me, I don't have to. I can be victorious over it. I have a purpose in life. I remember as a young child, first time I remember hearing about the importance of what Jesus did on the cross and how it applied to me. It was like, you mean there's a purpose for living that it transcends just uh, getting married, having 2.2 kids, having a car, and living in the suburbs? There's a, a, a purpose that transcends all that. And it gives me a perspective that keeps me grounded and hopeful in the face of difficulty. We live in a, in a horrendously difficult world. And I have hope because I have an eternal perspective that's rooted in the person and work of Jesus. But the question I think that uh, I want to ask this morning that may be too obvious, it remains for each of us individually, is whether this story is new or not, is what have you done with Jesus? I remember several times as a young boy, and I don't say this proudly, uh, I say it ashamedly, uh, on Christmas Day or around Christmas, I'd have a package, and I'd open the package up, and it would be some clothes. And I would look and I'd go, oh, clothes. And I would throw it to the side. 
You know, it wasn't something I could play with. It wasn't something I could look at. It wasn't something I could do something with. It was something I had to wear. Not exciting at all. Some of you have already received some gifts. Some of you will receive them and open them today. And you're going to go, hmm, eh, not so much. I'm taking that one back. Uh, it doesn't fit. I don't like it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discard that. Uh, take it back. Get something else. My... I want to implore you this morning is don't do that with Jesus. Ah, clothes. Ah, Jesus. You know. I'm telling you, it may not seem like he fits, but it does really, he does really fit. Um, he fits with our life. Don't cast him aside. You see, he is the means, the only means whereby we can be reconciled and brought back into a right relationship with God. The Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the uniqueness of, of Christianity and the blessedness we have, the hope that, there, that God tells us, Jesus, I am the, the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is salvation in no other. So my encouragement is, not to reject Jesus. I could ask everybody here, how, do you, how, would you go, how would you tell me to get to the Iowa State Capitol building, downtown Des Moines? <laughs> Some people would have the audacity to give me directions from Colfax. Because that's where they live. Some would give me directions from West Des Moines, from Johnston, from Norwalk, from you name the place where you live, and I'm going, well... Yeah, there's lots of ways to get to the Capitol building. There's only one way to get to God. There's only one route, and it's through the person of Jesus. And so on this Christmas Day, the, the, the most important thing I could share with you is just to re echo kind of what's been shared this morning, is to understand that the only way to be in a right relationship with God is through faith in Christ. Leads to a relationship with God through eternity. And the Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be safe. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's a pretty clear promise. Believe and receive. The question is, have you received it? Do you even really believe it? You know? I mean, we can kind of know about it in our head. We've heard about it all our life, but do we really believe it? We reject Christ to our own peril. We receive Christ to our own profit and to God's praise. It is about him being praised. We've been studying Ephesians. To the praise of the glory of his grace. All we've got to do is admit that we're messed up people. First of all, we heard in the passages this morning, holy is the Lord. God is holy. And therefore, he's holy and just, and he can't stand in the presence of sin. And so he's holy, and we're not. None of us. Never measured up to that standard. And because of that, we can never, we're unacceptable to God in our own self. And there's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable. So that's the marvel of Christmas, is that Christ came to earth to be a sacrifice for us to grow up to die in our place so that we could become acceptable to God through him and not ourselves. We must admit that we're sinful, separated from God, and that only through Christ can we be made right with him. 
then we must believe it. I mean, we, we must believe that Christ died to take our punishment, our sin. Not that my mom and dad did it, not grandpa and grandma, not my cousin, my aunt, my uncle, whoever. I had to personally own it. I must believe it, that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that he rose again from the dead, proving he had victory over sin and death. And then I must confess it. I mean, at some point we got to stop and say, you know, we, we, read, we had the words in the song, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. It takes humility. We have to be brought to our knees by the Spirit of God and recognize we're helpless before God. And that's what we want. And the Spirit of God has to stir within our hearts to make us realize that. We, I can't. I can stand up here and preach down blue in the face, and you don't care. But if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart and you've never personally confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Master, I just challenge you to do it. There's no better day to do it than on Christmas Day and to accept him. And one of the ways you can express this, this, this faith, and I'm going uh, to pray a prayer. Okay, I'm going to ask us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I'm going to pray a prayer. And this prayer is not magic words. There's nothing magic about it. But it expresses the kind of things you would need to communicate to God uh, and with sincerity in your heart for you to confess Jesus as Lord. And if that prayer expresses the desire of your heart, as I pray it out loud, you just pray those words or something like them to God, and he'll hear your prayer. Okay? I'm, I'm going to pray. Let's bow and let's pray. And you say something like, Father in heaven, I've heard this story before, but I admit right now that in my attitudes and my actions, I'm not living, and I don't live according to your word. I don't measure up to your standard. And I realize that I deserve your judgment. But I'm telling you now that I accept what Jesus Christ did as coming in a babe in a manger to be my Savior. I accept his death as a sacrifice, the payment that I deserve for my sin. And I accept that he rose again from the dead with confidence. I believe that I too will rise again from the dead as I trust in Jesus' death as a payment for my sin. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead and I claim the promise that I will be saved. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. On the basis of your promise to all who believe, I'm thankful that I am now a child of God. Please work in me to help me to grow in my faith and to become all you intend me to be. Amen. Those who who pray in faith or assured that they have eternal life. Listen to what John said. He said this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. Not that you might wonder about it, not that you might have questions about it, but that you might know that you have eternal life. So if you, maybe at some other point, you prayed that prayer or something like it, you expressed your, your faith in Christ, you have this assurance that you are a child of God. And if you didn't or you haven't yet prayed that prayer or accepted Christ as Savior, you can know that you will one day be with God in heaven. And believers, uh, you, you can experience uh, uh, this love that should spill out, right? I mean, you know, I heard a missionary once talk about how brutally he was treated by his captors. And every time they would treat him brutally, he would try to respond with kindness. And as he stood before this large audience, he said, you know, what's really in your heart spills out when you're bumped. You have a cup of coffee? Somebody bumps you, what spills out of the cup of coffee? Coffee. 
hot water, tea, whatever it happens to be. When I get bumped, what spills out? For those of us who know Jesus, I hope more consistently it is Christ. I'm going to be up front. If you want to talk about this more after the service, I'd be glad to stick around. If you want to pray about something else, I'd be glad to pray with you about that. But uh, I just want to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. We're just so grateful you came. And bless you, Karen. Thank you for uh, being our uh, solo uh, accompanist here this morning. It's just a blessing to hear Karen play and to know that she's uh, singing and playing and rejoicing with the Lord at the same time. So thank you for, for that. And uh, just wish you a, a very merry, blessed Christmas. Hope you can have time with your family and friends. Just a couple of announcements. We've got some folks. You have a bulletin there, so read the bulletin. A few people that we're praying for uh, that are struggling with some physical ailments. I know we've got a lot of people kind of like hodgepodge of people going down with illness and coming back, you know. So just keep praying for everybody, if you would. And uh, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. And Lord willing, we'll see you next year. All right, next Sunday.